Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one, which is nothing. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for each episode. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani. And I am Adam S. Thomas Esquire. And it's time to do our bit and a 1, 2, 3, 4, go Adam! Jazz hands! I can cha-cha-cha-cha! Yes, and in case you couldn't tell from that jazzy intro, our topic for this week, in honor of we are doing this on the week of Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> I love that a movie title just exudes how much they don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, here we go again. It's a reference to the, the actual band and also how much they don't give a shit. Uh, we are doing musicals, which, I don't know, Adam, I'm a pretty big fan of a good musical. I... However, am not. It happens to be my least favorite film genre, period. That's very interesting. I, I did not know this about you. You see, each episode I discover something new about you, Adam. That's the joy huh? of doing this every week. So I'm a question be... mark wrapped inside of an enigma. Yes, you very much are. <laughs> and uh, for this event, we are uh, going to discuss, obviously, a good movie and a bad movie. And I have two good movies for Adam uh-huh. to pick. And vice versa, Adam has two bad movies for me to pick, oh, yes. based within the musical genre. And so, Adam, why don't you go ahead and start? Go ahead and pick a number between one and ten for my two good choices. I'm going to go seven. All right. At number five is a movie very close to my heart, Cabaret from 1972, which is a Bob Fosse musical starring Liza Minnelli um, that takes place in Germany around a Nazi uprising. Which, um, isn't relevant at all. Never seen it. <laughs> I'm very curious seen it. to see how this goes then. And also yeah. at number two, the classic musical as well, Singing in the Rain. That I have seen. That is a good movie. I will That's give you that one. That's a classic. But let's go ahead and do Bad Choices, Adam. <laughs> and it's time for me to pick a number between one and ten. And I will go with number one. Okay, at number four, I have the... <laughs> I did this to myself too. Uh, from Justin to Kelly. Oh no! <laughs> no! <laughs> yeah, man. I went off. I went as hard as I could this time. I was like, I'm going hard in the paint. <laughs> uh, starring the two winners of well, one winner and the one, one winner up. and the runner up of season one of American Idol. Oh my god, this is going to yes, be sir. so bad. What was the other choice? Uh, Blues Brothers 2000. Oh, well, you know. Yeah. That's at least more offensive to something I care about, versus I couldn't give less of a shit about American Idol. <laughs> You're about to. You're about uh, to get... You're about to get... Oh, God, I'm dreading it, too. Fuck. Well, oh, well. we'll be tap-dancing into our <laughs> double feature in just a moment. 
Letis und Chad. Fräulein Salibolz! I'm Sally Bowles. I'm Brian Roberts. And I have this strange, mystical, daddish feeling about you. So you're moving right in, okay? Okay? Poor man. He tries to love me. I may have my tiny faults. Does it really matter as long as you're having fun? Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. My Damen und Herren, Madams and Messieurs, Ladies and Gentlemen. It is time to discuss our double feature, and joining us is our guest, Fraulein Caitlin Turner. Caitlin, how are you doing? Well, Tom, what can I say, but life is beautiful. It's a bit mixed. Uh, we're talking about a bit more depressing good movie and a super terrible, awful movie as well. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time you've been on the show here. Are you a fan of musicals in general? I grew up on Disney, so yes. But uh, had you been familiar with either of the two musicals we were going to discuss tonight? Uh, yes. I actually watched Cabaret when I was younger. I was probably... 10 when I first saw it. Great time. (laughs) Just everything. (laughs) I didn't get most of it, but I liked it. And I saw it from Justin to Kelly probably when it came out on DVD. God knows I didn't see this one in theaters. You mean, no one did. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it was only there for like, what, like 15 days or something? Yeah, like a week. Yeah. We'll get into all that, but first let's talk about our good film, uh, Cabaret which uh, was released on February 13th, 1972, directed by Bob Fosse, who is a a big director on stage and screen, probably best known as the guy who created a lot of the uh, stuff for the stage production of Chicago, which would later become a film after he passed away. And you can see a lot of that in Cabaret. A lot of the staging, a lot of the way that, especially the the mind hair number in this, really reminds me a lot of, like, Cell Block Tango in terms of a lot of the choreography. But in any case, it is a film based on a musical that premiered in 1966 and was also based on both a play called uh, I Am a Camera um, and also by the works of Christopher Isherwood, who uh, wrote a lot of based on a true story vaguely stories, including Goodbye to Berlin, which is what was the inspiration for Sally Bowles, the character played by Liza Minnelli here. I'm very curious to see here, because I know Caitlin obviously knew this movie before. I'm a big fan of this movie. Adam, you said this was your first time seeing it. Having seen it, uh, what are your first impressions of Cabaret? Okay. At first, I'd say within the first, like, you know, half hour, I'm like, oh, God. I don't know if I could do this, you know. But, but man, as it went on, I, you know, I found myself, like, putting the phone down and actually paying attention and watching it. It's a really good movie, dude. I mean, honestly, even now, I don't, Thinking about it, I don't really have many problems with it, which surprises me. Musicals are not my thing, man. But as I was explaining to my wife, this is a movie with musical numbers in it to me. So I can handle those a little bit better than when, like, say, from Justin to Kelly or, you know, Moulin Rouge or Les Mis, when the actors are singing each other their dialogue. It drives me nuts. Right, which is interesting because the cabaret musical, um, there's a lot more numbers, including when they're not on stage. Uh, aside from the Tomorrow Belongs to Me number that's in here, there are no songs outside of the actual cabaret. 
And uh-huh. I've heard some people who are bigger fans of the musical have controversy about that. I actually hadn't seen the musical until I watched a production that was filmed, directed by Sam Mendes, starring Alan Cumming as the MC, uh-huh. probably his most famous like Broadway part. And it's interesting because that works um, still, despite having like the musical numbers outside of the cabaret. But I think it works here really well because it shows the drama of these people living in like the tail end of the pre-Nazi era for Germany, and also how the entertainment kind of mirrors that, which I think is genius on Fosse's part. I think it's a great way of recontextualizing a lot of the musical numbers and even the MC character really well. Would you agree with that, Caitlin? Oh, yeah, no. I think they adapted the book slash play slash musical as well as they possibly could have. And I was surprised with a lot of the stuff they kept in because Christopher Isherwood who is the author, was very much ahead of his time. He wrote about a lot of controversial subjects. Like, one of the main storylines in the book version of this was a gay couple, which was something you didn't really hear about being written about, like, in 1938 or 9, whenever it was first published. You didn't see that talked about, really. So it's very interesting to see how much they've kept of that, because even in 1972, a lot of these subjects like abortion, menage a trois, stuff like that, were very controversial. Yeah, especially the bisexuality of the uh, Brian character, played by Michael York here, Mm -hmm. um, you might know as Basil Exposition, those Mm -hmm. of you who know. I was calling him Logan the whole movie, (laughs) because of Logan's run. (laughs) Right, yes, there's also that. But that whole... Thing, I think still really holds up surprisingly well. The fact that um, he has this sort of sexual naivete and how uh, Sally kind of respects it and then kind of guides him in a certain way. It's interesting because he's obviously far more book smart. She is obviously far more street smart. And I, I really love that friendship and then that connection and how that completely dissolves. It's a great way of sort of stringing together this whole story. And especially the chemistry between Liza Minnelli and Michael York is just phenomenal in this movie it's it's this kind of beautiful clusterfuck of a relationship and it's like oh hey i cheated on you oh i cheated on you too with the same guy (laughs) it's like what the okay then (laughs) we have our fun but guys nazis Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, don't like i'm still reeling from that nazi number man that one we'll get into that we'll get into that shortly but adam you were gonna say yeah, no, the thing is, yeah, they had chemistry and all, and maybe because this is my first time viewing it, and I'm at the age I am, but to me, uh, Sally just comes off like just a horrible person. <laughs> like, I, she just, I did not get behind her character at all. I get she was depressed and, you know, uh, failed before she even attempted actress, but just, yeah, man, uh, nope. <laughs> I did not like her at all. I felt bad for Brian almost the whole movie. Here's the thing. I don't think she's a horrible person, but I think she is a person with all the complexities that come with it for a woman in her time. Right. Now, I, I, I completely agree with Caitlin in terms of uh, I, I love Manelli's performance here because it really shows off oh, this God, woman. Yes. Who is, she's clearly naive. She clearly, in terms of just like really dealing with huge issues, like she is oncoming for her. She's very obviously like a young woman who loves the idea of just like being, you know, out there and partying and drinking and 
just having a fun time, and the movie keeps bringing up things that she tries to just go against. She isn't wanting to confront serious issues at any point. And when she has to near the end of it, she still knows the consequences with the... The, the, the scene where she is confronted by Michael York, where she reveals, like, I, I had the abortion, like, she just knows instinctively, like, this is all going to come crashing down, I don't want it to, and, but I have to face that. It's so the first really big adult decision she's made in her life, and it's brutal. And I, I think that's what really makes it work, is that she's a dimensional character. Yeah, and to be fair, it was the smartest decision she could have made. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, her and Brian... Although they loved each other, it obviously wasn't going to work. For reasons internal and also external (laughs) in their environment. Yeah. Well, not only that, it was also the fact they didn't have the money to take care of a child. I applaud her. I mean, I I don't applaud every nuance of the way she handled it, like you should have told Brian and shit like that before, but she made the best decision she could, and good on her, man. It's just a heart-wrenching scene to see her in that bed trying not com- to completely break down while he freaks out. Yeah, Adam! <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame Adam either, but it is one of those things where I think people are a lot more accepting of these kinds of troubles and character flaws. If it's a guy character as well, it com- it seems to come off a lot better to people for some reason. No, 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 no. Well, I mean, yeah, most people, I agree with you. I, I don't... Oh, no, I'm not saying that's way. the case with you. I'm just no, saying... No, 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 I, I know. I, I, I actually, hate Sally. I'm agreeing with you. No, the reason... I don't like it. Look, to be honest, once Maximilian came in the picture, you knew right then and there, like, yeah, she's going to cheat. Like, she's going to cheat. She's going to go after the money. I knew it right away. Now, did I know that Brian was also going to cheat? No. And does that make him a scumbag, too? Well, I mean, yeah, it makes him guilty as well. But, I mean, obviously, because it was played more from his perspective. But that's why, That's all I'm saying. Like, right away, I knew it. Like, there's no way she's not going to. But did you at least appreciate uh, Manelli's performance in the part? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And the thing is, I'm not very well-versed in Liza Manelli, other than, like, you know... Um, as God, what's your name? Number two in uh, oh, Lucille Two on her. Lucille Two, yeah. <laughs> I know it's Lucille Two. And then one of my one of my favorite Saturday Night Live skits from the last like ten years is Kristen Wiig as Liza Minnelli trying to turn off a lamp in her apartment. Oh God, yeah, that's <laughs> so funny. Yeah, that's about as well versed in her as I really am, and to the point where. I don't know if I ever knew or if I just completely forgot that she was Judy Garland's daughter. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this, this her type of, you know, art and performance and stuff is completely out of my wheelhouse. So, to see her in this, yeah, dude, she, she's pretty good, man. Yeah. Oh, real quick, fun fact. Liza Minnelli actually played Roxy Hart in a Broadway production of Chicago. Well, that doesn't surprise me at all. It, it, it all circles around eventually back to Chicago or Cabaret. No, that's true. I mean, it's it's a phenomenal performance for her for all these things that we're saying, but even just on the basic level of the a lot of the choreography, a lot of the way that she plays the um, the musical numbers. I love the bit during the money number where um, they do the knock knock. Who's there? Hunger. Ooh, hunger. <laughs> I love the way that bit is played comedically. And it it really shows that, like, later on, she would do a lot of great comedic parts, even non-musically, like in Arthur, where she played the love interest. Um, Oh, yeah, okay. I forgot about Arthur. Right. 
or in uh, New York, New York, where she's carrying that movie with Robert De Niro. It's like, this is kind of weird, but we're going to kind of move this along. I, I really, we mentioned the Master of Ceremonies in terms of uh, Joel Grey, uh, who uh-huh. would win an Oscar along with Minnelli, along with this movie, interestingly, won eight Oscars at the time, still the record holder for the most Oscar wins without winning Best Picture, because it lost to some movie called The Godfather. Right, like that movie's going to catch on and go anywhere. <laughs> Nowhere. Bullshit. <laughs> um, but what did we think of Joel Grey? He stole him the and, movie. Yeah, him and Liza Minnelli, man. Like, honestly, they stole the movie so much. I'm like, wait, who's this character again? Can we go back to them? Yeah, I, I no, think... he, could, he chewed up every scene he was in. I mean, you couldn't take your eyes off him. And I think that was very smart by them literally opening the movie basically with his face. So it's like you're thrust into, you, you have to watch this guy. And, yeah, uh, and it wasn't just his makeup, too. Although the makeup was... It was good, but it was also frightening. Yeah, it was very creepy, but he just exuded personality and playful charm and everything through every movement and every note that he hit and everything. I, I just I really liked him a lot. When I found out Alan Cumming played him on uh, Broadway or whatever, it's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, it's interesting because, in, oh, yeah. like, when he picked up the part, he did it a lot more overtly sinister and sexual. What I love about the Joel Gregg character here is that he has so much more of like an ambivalent asexual nature to him overall, and it's just more of like he puts on whatever show he needs to for the sake of entertaining the audience. Which initially, it's a lot more body, it's a lot more over the top, and as things go along, as things become sort of more consumed by this Nazi culture, he starts digging into that and going into like full-on anti-Semitism and stuff like that, just through performance. This movie does such a genius job of really portraying that idea of entertainment really feeds off of the culture, and how, yeah. yeah, just like, look, entertainment is inherently political. And even if it's something stupid, like he's dancing with a monkey, there's inherent political subtext to that. That uh-huh. really just shows up. I love how they use utilize all that. But he's also, as you mentioned, like exuding so much personality. There's so much fun there, especially at the beginning. And I also love how he's always in the cabaret club. And the cabaret club looks so convincingly dingy and shitty and small. Oh, just gross. You know, you can, and the makeup like you on the it. girls looks pretty gross. Let's be <laughs> real. You right. can smell the cigars and the, the mm. spilled whiskey all over the place and everything. You just smell that through the stream. Yeah, and I also love how um, stuff like the orchestra coming up. The orchestra, who is beautiful, um, coming up. They all sort of have the movements of, like, a country bear jamboree show. <laughs> I beg to differ with him on that. The orchestra being beautiful. I challenge that. <laughs> I challenge you, sir. <laughs> and but... it's interesting. Some people have actually interpreted There's the point where um, you sort of see the editing after Sally reveals that she's pregnant. There's some interesting editing choices where it cuts to like her and the MC together. And it kind of in- implies through the editing that it might actually be his kid. Oh, when he grabs her from behind? Yes. I didn't really get it to imply that so much as I saw it because he grabbed the tits a little bit, sure. But he grabs everybody's tits in this movie, to be fair. I, I kind of saw it as that thing where he's like, listen, get rid of the kid for your career. Because mm-hmm. he was whispering and just the look on her face. It wasn't one of they were lovers so much to me, but this sinister kind of he's pushing her to get rid of the kid for her chance at stardom. Yeah, I just assumed it was either 
it was, you know, was it Max's or was it Brian's? That's kind of what I assumed was the was the well, angle there. That's the yeah. main sort of drive, but I think it also kind of implies that slightly. But then again, that's what I like about the MC character is that there's a lot you can't interpret often because of how sort of oh, yeah. neutrally they kind of treat him in terms of... Oh, yeah. He just puts on all these faces. I would like to ask, what is everybody's favorite number? Adam, what was your favorite of the numbers in the film? The money song. They were just having so much fun, dude, throwing the coins in each other's pants and down her shirt. And, you know, you could tell they were just having a good time. And just shaking so, your titties to the tambourine. I mean, I do that here. <laughs> <laughs> but people throw rocks at me. I don't, I don't get it. Mr. Tambourine Man. Right. Uh, yeah. But, uh, no, I, I think that was definitely my favorite because that was the. The one number, well, I mean, obviously, it had to do once we start, she started uh, seeing Max, you know, obviously he had money, but that one felt like the most fun, I guess, where all, most of the other numbers had just such a really depressing underlying subtext to them, where that one was just, that one didn't uh, bum me out, let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Caitlin? I really liked Money, Money, Money. I also liked Two Ladies cabaret of course is fantastic mm-hmm. but honestly kind of the one that even more than cabaret or any of the others sticks with me even though part of me also hates it because of what it is it's tomorrow belongs to me i've never seen some something qu- quite shot so well with so little happening to portray what's going on. Right. This is, of course, the big Nazi number that you were referring to earlier, and it's a phenomenal piece of filmmaking, just because oh, yeah. it really just shows the escalating sort of nationalism, especially at what is supposed to be a simple, fine sort of picnic outdoors, and the starkness of seeing this giant sort of anthem pop up, this, you know, awful, brazen sort of uh, chant that rises throughout that entire crowd. It's terrifying it's horrific yeah, absolutely it was just chilling to the bone well also there's this war like it's implied he's a war veteran sitting at one of the picnic tables he doesn't get up and he just has this look on his face like he knows what's about to happen and he's just like oh fuck here we go again kind of see it written on his face right and there's also sort of that in that look of his face just like a, a desire to try and ignore it to try and like hopefully this will go past like hopefully this isn't a thing right. which is a recurring yeah. motif they do with a lot of songs in the musical version of cabaret but i love that they just have it with a look like that or the that great line of still think you can control them my favorite moment probably in the whole movie and yeah. just the look like, eh, I don't know, and then keeps going. It's it's a really darkly comedic, but just, like, brutally satiric moment in there. And the fact that it's not just, like, the old guard or, you know, the obvious sort of, like, Nazi youth, but it's, like, young kids and stuff like that just rising up with this nationalism, it's horrific. It's, it's a bit, you know, uncomfortable right now, maybe. <laughs> oh, yeah, because, like, initially when I saw it, like I said, I was about ten years old. My father was watching it on TV, and I just watched it with him. And I was confused, because I thought, oh, hey, it's a Boy Scout singing. And I didn't quite understand it until my father explained it to me. And I'm like, oh, oh, dear. (laughs) And then I didn't understand it even further until I got older. But, yeah, like, if you don't know what that uniform means and stuff especially not until later until he does the salute it can be disarming it's like oh this is just 
people banding together, but then it's like the salute, then it's like the full uniform, and then it's like, well, fuck. And it helps that it's the only one outside of the cabaret, so it really yeah. just like even really stands out more difference. Yes. It's the yeah. only one with like the really bright lights, the non-painted faces. It's this number that looks so beautiful. But it's so haunting, and it honestly, just the way it's all filmed and everything else, it it's the one that left the most mark on me. Both of these are great, but I would personally say a, a favorite of mine is, interestingly, it was a song that wasn't in the original show. It's been adapted since into the show, but it was an existing song that Liza Millie had sung previously, and she wanted to have put into the show uh, the Maybe This Time I'll Be Lucky number, which I think mm. just portrays that sort of naivete of the Sally character in a beautiful, swelling fashion, and just the fact that it's done to a very dingy crowd <laughs> that isn't really yeah. giving a shit. Because especially a big thing with Liza Minnelli in the part was that um, the original author did say that he thought Liza Minnelli was a bit too talented to play the part of Sally Bull, and that a big thing about her was more that she wasn't that talented, and that was part of sort of the tragedy. But I think that kind of works in an even more tragic way here, that Sally yeah. completely doubts herself all the time, doesn't think she'll ever be much of an actress, but she's Liza McFucking Nelly, who can sing wonderfully, but still just, like, psychologically keeps herself inside of the cabaret. That's all that she really thinks she can achieve, and that's why that makes the cabaret number even more tragic, because she's belting it out for a crowd of Nazis who's not going to give a shit. <laughs> that's so brutally sad but in a, such an engaging and grossing way that's what I think and works about this movie likely kill her friend probably <laughs> most most <laughs> likely um, which I will say we should probably talk about the fact that there's the whole subplot with the uh, sort of Fraulein Schneider character and uh, Fritz I will say if there's one thing that maybe doesn't hold up progressively in terms of the, a lot of the sexual politics of the movie and it's something I completely forgot about until I watched this yeah. again is the whole forcing on her thing I completely forgot that was a thing. And that's yeah. not great. No, that's pretty rough. And I mean, honestly, though, the, the, another thing, too, uh, I just don't know that that whole subplot was necessary for the most part anyways. Like, the, their whole story that I get, you know, to show that she's Jewish and that he's also a Jew in hiding and everything. But, I, I mean, was it necessary to further the story? I think it's very necessary because if you think about it, the way they react to her is a way that really shows another way, like how the anti-Semitism and the Nazi party are growing stronger in Germany. Cause before she's a wealthy Jewish Harris and people aren't going to mess with her, but eventually they do. And it's like, that's how strong these people are getting where they're even going to mess with the wealthy if you are Jewish. And I think it, while it's not the most important thing, I do think it's one of the ways that markably show how strong the Nazi regime is growing outside of the cabaret. It's more vital world building than it is a great sort of character arc, we'll just say. I think yeah, that's... Yeah, definitely. That's where I think, I, I agree, it does work, especially when you have the whole thing in between the number where um, you have the MC and all the other girls dancing and then getting the helmets on that's cut in between the whole thing of her dog getting killed. Um, I think really does a great job building up the fact that most people don't think the Nazis at this point are going to be a big deal. And then um, that happens... And it's just like, oh, it's fine, nothing's going to happen, and something serious like this is going on. And it just shows that 
they didn't even realize how bad this was in oncoming. And it's, it's moments like that, or I also love it's a non-musical moment entirely, but the whole thing where um, Brian walks in with Fritz to do another English lesson, and the people who are running the hotel or the, the apartment are talking about um, the whole Jewish conspiracy thing, uh-huh. hits home so well. And how it's just... Oh, yeah. And sort of the awkward pause, and the, like, I wish the Kaiser was back in power, that's where we kind of missed that era, and it's like, oh, fuck, <laughs> this just shows it on, like, a groundswell level. I think that's why the Fritz and... People don't actually realize sometimes just how markably fast the Nazi regime basically came into power through propaganda and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and the, st- the station left behind after World War One. Yes. And this movie, I think, shows it well, because literally Fritz and um, uh, Natalia aren't together very long before her dog is killed. And that, to me, really shows just how strong they're getting so quickly. It's a fun show, guys. We talk about fun things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about dogs dying. Mm-hmm. and Now I need to watch John Wick. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about the musical clone of dogs dying shortly. Um, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before we go too far, um, I do also want to mention, I think what we've been talking about, um, I think, Bob Fosse's direction in terms of a lot of the musical numbers and stuff, but I really do have to praise just, like, some of the really haunting visuals of the movie, particularly the final shot, for example. I think just the way how it literally shows this big musical venue is just um, <laughs> reflecting the audience, um, stuff like that, or just the way he makes, despite the fact that the place is smaller and dingy, feel longer, like the whole phone conversation that Brian and Sally have. Um, I, it just it shows so much depth of the club without really actually <laughs> revealing a huge set, because they probably didn't have it. Um, it, it. Stuff like that. Are there any other moments of the direction that really are um, noteworthy to you guys? Well, I mean, we've talked about that uh, Tomorrow Belongs to Me scene, that right there. Holy crap. Um, but like you said, the ending scene where, like, you haven't really seen Nazis in the audience and they've actually been laughed out at points. But now, sitting comfortably, being treated as patrons. And it's like, dang. That hurts. Mm-hmm. And that is haunting to see. I also, I really liked the um, the intercutting so like when the older gentleman was being assaulted, when it was everything else, that talk about watching that going, oh, good God. But they did that a couple times. I really liked the way they made that work, where they would do like the dual montages. This isn't my genre per se. And today was my first time watching it. Literally, it went off about a half hour before we started recording. So it's still kind of all fresh for me. But would you say it's one that you would recommend to people who maybe aren't usually musical fans? Oh, yeah. No, I'll, I'll rewatch it again myself. Because I know there's things in there that I've missed, that there's subtext that I didn't pick up on the first time. There's things that I, I would like to maybe watch again when I don't have a toddler throwing my little pony to- toys in my face, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> I'm trying to picture that. Serious oh, no, Nazi it... business. Ponies! Yeah, it was happening, too. Yeah, no, I would definitely recommend this to somebody who's not into musicals. So like I said, the musical thing, its I'm probably one of the, I'm sure there's other people that do it, but for me, this is a movie that happens to have musical numbers in it. I, I for some reason, don't classify this as strictly a musical. Well, it's a different type of musical. There's 
there's the generally two types. Mm. Um, it, there's even a term for it. I'm trying to think real quick. Um, I think it's like digasis or something like well, di- that. Diegetic. But diegetic. That's right, it. Right. That's it. Basically, that's the type of musical like this is where it's just the numbers in between and stuff like that. Generally, like um, Disney musicals even sometimes get like that for a good example. Mm-hmm. Right. That's some a type of musical a lot of people like, while others can also like the others. It's it's a really an interesting difference, but they're both firmly in the musical category, I think. Oh, but I did want to praise one thing about the film real quick. Liza mm-hmm. Minnelli, this was actually her first singing role in film. And I'm like, you knocked it out the park? Because mm-hmm. she, she really makes the music feel natural when she's on the stage. And once again, that feeds into such a perfect tragedy about... Um, her character um, oh, yeah. in the movie that's completely different from the musical. Where her facial like... expressions are perfection, in all honesty. They are everything. And plus, she's very charming when she just comes up just in generally in person, where she's like, I have my faults. <laughs> but come on. And then she, how she's just like... Um, just you have a cigarette, goes... darling. <laughs> going for the gin, the whole... Um, thing where she goes under the pass and she starts uh, screaming stuff like that. It's interesting. She kind of feels like an a very early deconstruction of the trope we would later call the manic pixie dream girl because yeah, she, like, she sweeps into Brian's life. She's just like, look at all. I'm weird and whimsical and fun, and I'm I'm fun at parties. Don't you want to like just hang out with me? And they do hang out and they do have fun together. And then just like, oh wait, that fun's kind of fleeting when you got to make really fucking adult decisions, <laughs> and that really fucking hurts. And I think it's a movie that's interestingly about not just the loss of innocence of you know these characters but how that mirrors the country in of itself with the fact that there's like this nazi uprising is coming it's it works as both like a historical record um and a metaphor for these characters kind of growing up and getting out of this particular period of their lives oh yeah i fully agree there and she just honestly her and the mc man so dang good i can't say it enough well, what that might be a good way to just go into the final thoughts on Cabaret, Caitlin. Honestly, this is a movie for everyone, especially in today's political climate. It hits hard just seeing uh, that's, that Tomorrow Belongs to Me number. Great character acting, great numbers, great shooting. The costumes are also great. It's an A-plus movie. Check it out. Adam? I would say this movie is almost for everyone except for maybe young children. <laughs> oh, come on, let them join me in my 10-year-old first year. Ages yeah. 11 and up, guys. Yeah, right, 11 and up. Um, I don't want to explain, I don't know if I want to explain Nazism to, uh, a, you know, like a five-year-old yet. Um, oh, God. But, like I said, I already said, you know, ad nauseum, this is not my genre, uh, but I, I thoroughly did enjoy the movie. I really appreciated this film. I thought it was great, for some, especially for someone who wouldn't ever choose to watch something like this. Uh, that it has to be chosen for them by his dickhead co-host. This was a pleasant surprise. This is this is the first one that's been picked on the show that I haven't seen that I, I walked out really enjoying. I mean, I would throw maybe Hurricane Heist in there, too. But... Um, <laughs> Equal level films. Guys. <laughs> equal, equal level in every way, especially subtext. I just thought, yeah, this was a really good movie. It, it's very enjoyable. It just felt filled with fantastic performances, depressing imagery. Uh, it's just, it's a good movie. And like Caitlin alluded to earlier, 
a lot of hot button, you know, issues that, frankly, I'm surprised they even pulled off in 1972 when they made this. Yeah, and yes. this was written like the original material. The book was written in yeah. 1938, 39. So, like, dang. Yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. Yes, it's a, it's not one of those great sort of 70s era movies that has the grime and the dirt. And despite the fact that it has musical numbers, it still uh, just really keeps that consistent kind of dirtiness and realism and groundedness. But in a way that, like we've all mentioned, it really transcends not just the time period this is set in, but also the time it was made. And despite maybe a few occasional problems with that, um, it, it still just really holds up wonderfully. It's a favorite musical of mine, and I hope more people see it. But speaking of things that are cultural relics, but maybe not have stood the test of time, oh. it's uh, time speaking to talk Speaking of about... dickhead co-hosts, Adam. <laughs> yes. He chose this fucking thing. Look, we're, we're we're both guilty here. Uh, this is a murder-suicide that you jumped in on, Caitlin. From Justin to Kelly. This summer, come with us to Miami. It's not my scene. Music will bring two strangers together. Hey, they go from the beach. And nothing can come between them. I'm going to ask her out again. Except all their friends. So what does this girl need to do to get heat? There are a million hot girls here, and you're still talking about the one girl who blew you off. Kelly Clarkson. I should take a chance. Justin Garini. This song is special. In the musical event of the summer. From Justin to Kelly. Yeah, star star my old boy JG. For those of you who might not remember, uh, I, American I'm sure Idol. There's a lot of them. <laughs> right. Um, American Idol started in 2002, and it was of course the big singing competing reality show that became synonymous with the rise of reality television in the early 2000s. And uh, the first winner was of course Kelly Clarkson, who has gone on to have a career as a pop musician, and Justin. Guarini was the runner-up, and it was decided right after they were the two highest possible people on that first season for them to be contractually obligated to star in a feature film called From Justin to Kelly, which would come out on June 20th, 2003. And it's almost as if not only the stars, but also the movie itself really realized it's a contractual obligation and wants to get done fast. Adam spoke yeah. about not liking Sally, right? And just like n disliking her character and stuff. That's how I felt about a particular character in this film. I was ready to stab somebody. All of them? Specify. Yeah, right. No, 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 no. There was one worse than the rest, and that's the Alexa, the blonde one. The Southern Belle blonde bimbo. She yeah. was the ultra bitch in this. I can't believe you got that emotionally invested in this. <laughs> no, it's because I, I knew girls like her growing up in high school. It's the worst type of person to exist. I wanted to stab all of them. Now, I love that Justin Guarini and his like hip friend have their nerd friend with them. Which, by the way, Justin Guarini looks way much more like the nerd friend than that oh, guy ever oh is. Oh, yeah. No, no. The nerd friend is actually uh, a, a pretty famous like TV star. His name's like Brian D something. I can't remember. But he plays um, Dr. Jimmy Palmer on NCIS. Yeah, well, uh, Justin Guarini plays the cock rocker in the Dr. Pepper commercials. So... <laughs> 
That's, you know, good point, Adam. Clearly, <laughs> right. more, the most famous person in this cast. Um, right, just, exactly. I guess a brief plot synopsis. Um, Fuck. Good, good luck. Well, I mean, it, it's pretty simple, actually. It's just like um, Kelly is um, this girl who works as a bartender slash singer at her local bar where she's stalked oh. by some creepy dude with a cowboy hat named Luke. Um, yeah. And her friends are like, hey, you're such a stick in the mud. Let's go to Miami for spring break. I don't know. Come on. Okay. And uh, then credit sequence starts. This is all in like the first three minutes of the movie. Once again, not spring. even. And I mean, literally, it's that easy, too. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and not only like. that, it starts with like the worst cover of Vacation you've ever heard. And I'm like, <laughs> wincing during the entire thing. Yeah, because the musical numbers that are written for the movie, or more likely thrown from out of like some composer's trash can onto the screen, are pretty forgettable and terrible, but the covers are garbage. Like, there's that, and there's the cover of That's the Way I Like It oh, at the end. Oh. They take good songs and make them just garbage. Um, it just overproduced early 2000s pop song garbage. I'll tell you what, though, the random choreography, man, those guys were all spot on with each other, weren't they? On the right. beach. <laughs> the choreography was. That's what I took away thing. from it. So was the costume designing. At least with musicals, one of the things you look forward to is the choreography and the costumes. And I'm like, I could not be more. To be bored. fair, though, they were on spring break in Florida. That's, That's I mean, no excuse. They could have at least gotten prettier bathing suits because those were like cheap $5 ones you get from Walmart. <laughs> Once again, Caitlin, this was clearly a movie done by contractual obligation of like, fuck it, go, go, go. Let's get these here. Let's get whatever right, we have. Exactly. Let's get this out. Let's make as much money on these kids as we can. Before they completely lose interest. So we'll release uh-huh. it a year after the end of the season where they won the fucking show. Which is a shame because if this had been successful, um, we would have gotten what I would have preferred, which was from Ruben to Clay. Yes. Yeah, yes, I, that I would have been the one. Would have far okay. preferred a shot-for-shot remake with uh, Ruben Stuttered and Clay Aiken. Um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway... The postman always rings Bo Bice. Exactly, that's true. <laughs> but anyway, so this movie, um, basically, those three go off on vacation to Miami. They run into Justin and his crew, which includes the nerd guy, and dude who has some kind of business doing whipped cream bikini mm-hmm. contest with Fuck Justin. Fuck that guy. Just let me punch a couple people in this film. Let rat. me have some fun. Let me have yes. some fun punching. <laughs> and they, they meet on the beach, and I love that they have a whole dumb musical number of Justin and Kelly getting together, and they're saying about, oh, girl, you're so hot. Oh, man, you're so hot. And then when they get up to the room, they're like, hey, Kelly, that guy was really hidden on you. No, he wasn't. He sang a whole song to you, motherfucker. I know, they're like grinding on each other and everything. I do <laughs> yeah. find, what I do find funny is that the nerd guy was like the best male singer in this. I find that so hilarious. Don't you dare throw shade at Guarini. Don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> he sang his heart out. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, clearly, but uh, don't you also love a musical romantic movie where the the couple are just, like, simmering with complete lack of chemistry? Isn't that just what you want out of yes, a movie like absolutely. this? But it's interesting. It's not necessarily a we-hate-each-other chemistry, but more of, like, two people who are embarrassed of themselves, and they're like, look, we have to get through this. We don't like this, but please... 
please, we have to make this work somehow. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's actually not the truth, because Justin really wanted to do this. It was Kelly who didn't. She was actually praying, because she talked about this in an interview. She started praying that she would actually not win American Idol, because she had no interest in acting. Justin did. She did not, and she made herself sick over it. And when she won, she started begging the producer and creators of American Idol to let her out of this contract and free her from this hell, and they did not. It was obvious that I don't even think those two like each other. It's not even the that they have bad chemistry. You could tell it's like they just don't like each other. And they obviously, like, I don't think – he might want to be an actor, sure, but – he didn't want to do this fucking movie. <laughs> like this whole movie's just a fucking mess. It's just it's a it's just it's awful. But not really <laughs> an engaging mess at all. That's the biggest tragedy of it. Yeah, exactly. It's it, it's very much a fart in the wind. Where much like in theaters, it just like it came out, it, it was briefly unpleasant, and then left. And that's pretty much how it's also working in our memories, I think, at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll forget about this movie in in a month. I'm going to forget everything that happened in this movie. I'm going to forget everything about it. Yeah. But how can you forget about the scintillating moments of, like, (laughs) them professing their love for each other on a boat, not staring at each other at all? Yeah. What I find hilarious is they have some people who could really sing and dance in this movie, and, like, some of the people who got the most singing parts couldn't really sing because they've got uh that anika noni rose who eventually becomes tiana from princess and the frog and one of the dream girls in the dream girls movie (laughs) yeah she got pipes and you've got like robert hoffman who is a well-known dancer like he was the star in uh step up Two, the male star oh really yeah right but they've also got what are the pussycat dolls in here? Fucking Jessica Suda. Right. And then they've got this girl playing Alexa, Catherine something. I can't even remember her last name. And she cannot sing with worth a lick. And her song, I'm Gonna Wish Upon a Star, oh is God. the worst oh, in this damn movie. And I wanted to rip off my ear. That's really the moment where you've hit rock bottom is really that I will agree that is the worst song of the whole movie and all of them are bad but that one is just really the bottom level because we're doing this song that's essentially promoting the fact that this girl just likes to cause chaos because she wants to be the center of attention what a wonderful celebrating song for this awesome character that we all love I could have at least stood it basically if she could sing But her singing during that entire number is like, you know, when you've got a five-year-old child belting out a Disney song into one of those fake microphones that echo and it sounds like shit? Yeah. About ten times worse than that. (laughs) I know, dude, for real. Like, on a scale of one to Guarini, she's easily a two. (laughs) (laughs) You really like Guarini. (laughs) And I just think it's because you like the last name. He's my olive-colored angel. <laughs> it's mostly the Dr. Pepper commercials, isn't it? Yeah, it's 100%. 100%. Or, 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 or is it the, the Sideshow Bob hair? Which I remember that was a recurring right, gag throughout that first that season. Out? 
I, I don't know, but they. I remember that was a recurring gag while yep, the, the first season of that show, and they literally have it in the movie, just like, eh, remember that? That's his look. He's quirky. <laughs> I I love the fact that they also the studios were arguing with the theaters about like Fox wanted to release this only like six weeks after it came out in theaters on DVD and VHS and theaters were like no you can't do that because we want to make as much money as we can and the movie literally lasted even less than six weeks in theaters I know, so it they just kept month. the same date <laughs> it it didn't yeah it didn't even last what is it from opening day it was on uh, home video in twenty nine days yes. <laughs> so yeah, it less like, than a month. It took it less than a month from opening day for you to be able to buy it in the store. It's trying to be like one of those Elvis movies, one of those like beach movies, especially. Yeah, that would yeah, have yeah. people that were hit the uh, teen idols at the time um, to try to like recapture that. But why? Who wanted yeah, to recapture? I, I know, right? That's what I'm saying. And and the thing is, those older movies, those people who would be in it. With their, for the cameos or whatever, were established like stars. People knew who they were. Mm-hmm. Fucking who gives a shit about the runner-up from American Idol? <laughs> Who's going to go see a movie? I mean, I did because it's Justin Guarini. But <laughs> <laughs> Adam saw it all 29 days it was still at the end. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm responsible for four million of the five. But <laughs> who, I mean, seriously, you're banking on that. Nobody gives a shit. And it's so obvious, like, the, just the pure lack of chemistry you can even tell in the trailer. Kelly Clarkson just so doesn't want to be there. It's so obvious. She just doesn't want to be part of this. And her character and, is such a wet blanket, the whole movie. It's the worst. Yeah. She is awful. She is an awful character. Most of them are, like, mutually terrible. The only person, honestly, I would really say I felt like, man, you really should get the hell out of here because you do have talent, is Anika Noni Rose. Like, watch yes. this the whole time. It's like, you are clearly tied down to such terrible songs. And a weird subplot, too, of like, oh, I'm going to be with this waiter guy, and we're going to go to a secret club. Oh, man, you made me lose my job, and I got a different job anyway right afterward. And now right. I'm sorry, let's so make up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, she had uh, Zoe Saldana from Crossroads Syndrome written all over her. Oh, that's so oh, accurate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, why are you in this? Why the fuck are you in this movie? Like, Taryn Manning in Crossroads. All right, cool. That's the blonde girl in this one. You get it. They belong there. <laughs> so he's so pounding. Like, oh, no. At least Taryn Manning was Pensatucky later. What the fuck is this lady doing? <laughs> she did, like, a bunch of, like, bullshit CW shows. Oh, so she's a big, big star then. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't star in a Dr. Pepper commercial either. But no, you all know who did. <laughs> now I'm just picturing Adam just yeah. in in the theater sh- setting, just renting out the entire theater to watch this movie. Oh, loving with Dr. it too. With the Dr. Pepper sitting next to him in every seat, yeah. just a can of it. No, no, no. Dr. Pepper and all my waifu pillows. Just Dr. gotten his hair done to look just like yeah. Justin and everything. It yeah. was perfect. Yeah. Oh, it was great. Dr. Pepper waifu pillows. Yes. Yeah. We mentioned the nerd character. Yeah. You really have to go into how awful all of the nerdy references are. <laughs> and God, yeah. so forced. And then the guy is so, I mean, obviously not a nerd. But Adam, he sure he has a six-pack, and he looks really clean, doesn't have any acne scars or anything, and he totally has a great voice. But he's got glasses, and he wears zinc on his nose. He's a fucking uh-huh. dork. And like a safari hat or whatever those are called. <laughs> 
and his whole subplot of trying to find some like this person that he met online. And Caitlin, I know you and I have had online relationships. Don't you yes. just always immediately get attracted to somebody by their web page? By their oh. web page, you could click on their heads. <laughs> it's magical. And oh. what, what were their stupid usernames like? Picard fan six nine or whatever the fuck it was, uh, and, and they met in the Xena chat room. In the C- <laughs> but uh, and also a, a credit to a joke that is like has multiple layers of terrible now in context of progression of time, where he goes over and he looks at a rotary phone. And he's like, "How can I log on? There aren't even buttons on this thing." That's a joke so bad that technology has made it doubly bad. <laughs> How do I log on to a rotary phone? So, you guys brought the mentally handicapped, like, nerd with you. I mean, that that is so offensive on so many levels. There's, like, this one scene where he's supposed to be tanning and he gets sunburned. But this is not a sunburn I've ever seen before. <laughs> this is not, I'm a lobster. This is still, hey, I look pretty damn good with my clothes off. I'm like, no, this is not right. possible. Yeah. No. Now I'm getting angry at the movie. I'm getting angry. <laughs> it's it's Caitlin just rubbing off on you. Listen, I've had Wish Upon a Star stuck in my head for three days. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm Talk gonna go about... listen to the isolated Guarini part of that song real quick. I'm gonna mute you guys. There wasn't any Guarini in that <laughs> well, one. Well, I'm gonna find a version. The, 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 the hidden isolated track on the DVD that's just Guarini. Yeah. That isolated track also just has Justin doing all the Foley and all the other people's voices, and it's just Guarini doing everything. How magical would that be? He would buy every copy. I'm trying to finance it right now. (laughs) Probably don't have to pay him much. (laughs) Also, to top it off, like, the nerd character, he wears these Hawaiian shirts. But even worse than that, he's got, like, the full length sleeve white shirt underneath it and this isn't a thin top this is like a regular top and i'm like there is no one in florida gonna wear that (laughs) no No one but then again there's also no one in florida who's gonna encounter somebody's stalker and be like you know what let's have a hoverboat chase which also when she's worried about him even though he just got in an accident that is the one kind of funny bad scene where, like, he, the guy has a clear, like, a concussion and blood coming down, and Kelly's like, oh my god, no, this this guy has some, some sort of horrible injury, and Justin's like, I guess she's into him now. He's bleeding! Oh, I, I lost her. The one that got away. The cowboy guy, the stalker, does not know how to take a hint. Well, he's no. a stalker, so no. Well, <laughs> true. But I mean, even worse than that, like, her friend, Alexa, fuck you, bitch, calls him to come down to Fort Lauderdale, and then he force tongues her, and I'm like, ugh, God, this is so rapey. It's another one of these movies where people are clearly, like, doing things they don't want to do, but people see it from afar and immediately, like, I know the entire situation right here and now. Everything's over. <laughs> there's that. Oh, there's also the scene at the bar where he ends up kissing... Um, the Alexa character as well. It's just so much of people that, that stupid bullshit misunderstanding Three's Company shit throughout this entire movie. Oh yeah, it, it, it's just so painfully bad. And the worst part is the worst part that kills me the most 
is Tom broke some devastating news to me a few days ago that the person who wrote this mm. is the same woman who wrote Spice World. And I died inside. Kaylin is a big defender of Spice World. I love Spice World. It's well, <laughs> I can't say I'm that really surprised. So my wife loves that movie too. It's uh, so much fun because, like, the problem with that one is everything's like that, a problem with that movie. I will fight you. <laughs> I, Fair I, enough. I, I, I will pour your Dr. Pepper down the drain and you shred know, your Dr. Pepper wife and pillows. Know, I'll say That's this. I'll call my boy JG. He's got a lifetime supply. Guys, guys, I gotta, like, <laughs> just separate these two for a second. I'll say this much. I'm not a fan of Spice World either, but I will give it this much. It feels more authentic to the sort of tribute to the Beatles movies of the 60s than this is to the Beach movies of the 50s. I yeah. agree with that. Plus, I Spice agree. World was just allowed to just go insane. It was never taking itself seriously. This one tries to take itself seriously, and it is painful. That's true. There, there's not a single bit of authentic charm or bit of, like, winking that would, you know, make this maybe tolerable. Um, but, yeah. So let's let's wrap this up. We talked way more than I expected about From Justin <laughs> to Kelly. Um, go ahead, Adam, start off your final thoughts on From Justin to Kelly. Well, first of all, it should just be called Justin. But it's a terrible film. I mean, this is this movie is... This is just awful. You know, I say almost every episode that, okay, this is the worst one we've watched yet. This is the worst. This is the worst one I've watched yet for this show. Um, I mean, I, you know, this Theodore Rex and probably Battlefield Earth are the top three bad ones, but this is just atrocious. I, I wouldn't ever, I could show Theodore Rex to somebody to, for like, you know, dude, you got to see this. It's so bad. It's so funny. It's so bad. This, I wouldn't even want to wish upon my worst enemy. Like, it would just be cruel and unusual punishment. It, it, this is just, it's pure, just awful, awful shit. And I can't recommend this to anybody alive or dead. Nobody <laughs> should see this movie. Well, such words of praise. Caitlin, what are your final thoughts on From Justin to Kelly? Um, fuck Alexa. <laughs> fuck this movie. <laughs> fuck Alexa again. Fuck Wish Upon a Star! Get out of my head! Please, God! The singing's atrocious! Also, there's a reason Justin lost to Kelly. He's not that good a singer. You take that back. Never! (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we have a war start, I will butt in with my final thoughts here. Uh, From Justin to Kelly is garbage. So thank you for uh, coming on to our episode uh, all about uh, the musicals. Uh, you heard us sing praise and not so much praise. Uh, we have to get to our feedback, of course, uh, which we asked all of you via the Double Edge Double Bill uh, Facebook page and Twitter account about your favorite and least favorite musicals. Uh, Don Chambers says, Blues Brothers for favorite, Grease for least favorite. Yeah, I mean, Blues Brothers is underrated in terms of being a musical. Um, in a yeah. lot of ways, uh, and Greece, I do feel is overrated, and also um, that's a movie with a terrible abortion subplot. Watch yep. Cabaret instead. Yeah, yep. I uh, I love Blues Brothers. That's one of my all time favorites movies. Period. But yeah, I, I I've never gotten to Greece, but I have always had I have that horrible like eight for John Travolta. So look at it. I can never beat Justin. Okay, I can't. Right. I just can't. I'll try if you want, but that's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> 
Next, uh, Scott Crawford says, uh, My favorite would have to be Cannibal the Musical, directed by Trey Parker and Matt Stone. My favorite song from Cannibal would have to be The Trapper Song. Um, that, that one's fun. I, I do quite enjoy the yeah, low-budget charm of Cannibal the Musical. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, if, if you want to see where Trey Parker and Matt Stone really came from, it's all there. Uh, Heather Thomas has this to say, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show for favorite, least favorite across the universe. I wish it was cooler to get this movie, but I'm not, and I don't. Lol. Um, no, it's not good. <laughs> it's, not. <laughs> it's not. It's really not. It's you know, really when, not. When it came out, though, man, there were people that championed that fucking movie. Yeah. Rocky Horror Picture Show, yeah. though, is fun. And you yeah, Rocky Horror Picture Show is great. And you really can't beat Tim Curry in a corset and fishnet stockings. Indeed. And heels. I mean, it's not easy having a good time. <laughs> not at all. Um, but yeah, Across the Universe is garbage, though. Aside from the one sure, thing, sure. the one moment I like is kind of the, the Eddie Izzard, Mr. Kite thing. Because yeah. it was just Eddie Izzard kind of drunkenly singing the song. But well, otherwise... There some good visuals in it, too. No, no, there I mean, were, yeah, because I mean, it's Julie Taymor, who's a very yeah. talented visual stylist. Yeah. But in that same way, it's kind of like uh, her, speaking of musicals, her uh, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark where it's just like, oh man, so oh. Many, many weird visuals, terrible songs, what does this mean at all? I'm not sure. <sighs> God. Rachel Belwar has this to say, favorites, Fiddler on the Roof, West Side Story, not a fan of Music Man. Cabaret, though, and Bob Fosse in general, is excellent. Yeah, um, Fiddler on the Roof and West Side Story are favorites of mine. Uh, Music Man is a great example of like a 60s musical, in terms yeah. of it just is super long and there are some good songs in there, but it stretches on forever. And you're like, why is this two and a half hours long? Oh, wait, because we have to fit in 50 musical numbers. That's why. Yeah, I saw West Side Story in school. Fiddler on the Roof, I don't know if I've ever seen it. I know a lot of the songs from it, just from other things, but uh, no, I've never seen Music Man. You've so. seen the, the, the Topol starring sequel Flash Gordon, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have seen that. I, I didn't really care for West Side Story too much, personally. I found it annoying. But, you oh. know, that's me. But there's a place for us somewhere, Adam. Somewhere. <laughs> God. Um, Brian Kane has this to say, I will never understand why anyone likes Reaper the Genetic Opera. Its idea of being a musical where everyone just kind of speaks sing-songy with no structure or unifying bar scale. Fight me. <laughs> I will yeah. fight you in the streets over this one. I think that's a fun movie. It's uh, it's a great movie. Has some great numbers, and it had a role where I actually liked Paris Hilton. Yeah, I think it's just fun. I, I mean, is it mind blowing? And the are the songs good? Not. I mean, let's be honest. Not really. I love it. But it's it's a fun movie. Yeah, I mean, I I get that style isn't for everybody, though, but I, I do enjoy it in Repo the Genetic Opera, um, I think, that despite the fact that it's like everybody is sort of like singing throughout, that's more of the style of an opera, as it mm-hmm. were, because uh, that's literally what that is more the case. Um, yeah. But, I mean, at the same time, there are other mu- movies I like that have that similar style. Um, Umbrellas of Sherberg is a movie that I recently discovered and is great and has a similar style to it. That isn't for everybody. I do get that. Um, yeah, I do get that, but I love the shit out of that movie and the other musical, um, the other musicals he's done. Ooh, those I did not like. The Devil's Carnival <laughs> movies. But, oh, I, yeah. I enjoyed them. I, I enjoyed quite a few numbers of The Devil's Carnival. I have not seen the Alleluia one, the second one in that series, but... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Stephen D. at WaitingFTH on Twitter has this to say, Funny Face, it's the only musical I ever bought the soundtrack to. That's one I haven't seen. 
I've been curious. I've never even heard of that. It's an Audrey Hepburn starring musical. Oh, I ha- okay. I've seen it. It's fun. Okay. Is it a fun knee face? <laughs> so anyway, we have more feedback to read. Uh, <laughs> Christian Alvarez has this to say about our Friday the 13th episode, which was our last episode. Uh, speaking of Friday the 13th, have you heard about the Tommy Jarvis tape Easter eggs from the video game of Friday the 13th? I thought it was an interesting way of building a bridge through the Tommy trilogy and also a bit beyond that. And yeah, I didn't know about this because I didn't play the Friday the 13th video game. Um, oh. And I, He linked to the YouTube uh clip of all the tapes together and uh that's a great audio drama of just like connecting the dots it's fan fiction oh, yeah. but actually pretty good it's fan great. fiction yeah it was really well done i found them in game because i used to play it a lot i don't play it anymore but uh yeah it was fun yeah i'm very uh much a fan of uh the video game and very sad about what it's going through right yes now. I think what, right around the time we recorded that episode, it got hit with more of the um, sort of legal battles that are going on, and now they're not producing anything else because the whole Victor Miller lawsuit that's going yeah. right. They Which legally is can't such a shame because they had su- they had quite a bit plans left, and they can't even deliver the Kickstarter promises now because they've been hit with the kind of cease and desist thing. But yeah, no, what they have in that game is excellent. All the Easter eggs and stuff like that, a lot of fun. A lot, a lot of fun. And would you say that that, um, the Friday the 13th franchise is a favorite of yours, Caitlin? It holds a special place in my heart. I can't really say it's a favorite, simply because you have such a mixture of the good ones and the bad ones. But yeah, like you can't really talk horror without at least paying homage to Friday the 13th and what it did to the, to the genre in general. Definitely. Uh, Stephen D is this to say also about our Friday the 13th episode. Uh, accidentally started listening to the Friday the 13th episode early. We start early for Friday the 13th on the side of the globe. Hopefully a coincidence, not an omen. Hopefully not. Uh, just look around your every corner, Stephen. You don't know what's going to happen. Especially if you're walking in the woods. And then uh, Brian Kane has this to say um, about... We recently reposted our rundown episode in honor of Skyscraper coming out. And he says, uh, The rundown is unironically a modern action vehicle classic. Yeah, is it, though? <laughs> it's fun. It's, it's a fun. good action movie. It's a fun action movie. I'll give him that. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the better wrestler-starring vehicles from WWE. Yeah, that's not saying anything. Thank you for all of you who shared the feedback. Before we go, we want to thank a few people. Thanks to Chris Oliver for the music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, also, thanks to Emily Scarda for the art for our podcast. Uh, she accepts commissions at fiverr.com slash eescarda. And we also want to thank Caitlin Turner for coming on this evening. Uh, Caitlin, do you have anything to plug while you're here? Uh, lost in a sea of stories.wordpress.com. Basically, I talk about books. Yes. Um, and she writes lovely stuff over there. And of course, you can find me and Adam over on uh, Twitter, uh, obviously at DEDBpod for the show. Um, on Facebook or Twitter, and also uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com if you want to email us anything. But our own individual accounts are at not the who's Tommy on Twitter, and what's yours, Adam? Malekithfan6969. Yeah, own it. Own it, <laughs> motherfucker. It's pretty great. Um, also, uh, we want to recommend you all go and subscribe to us on iTunes if you like the show, and please rate and review us. It really gives the show more visibility if you do that. gets us more attention. We would really appreciate it. Yes. 
I agree. I would really appreciate all of those things. Yes, we all concur. <laughs> that. And on that note, we gotta saunter our way out of this episode. Good night, everybody. Cheers, hands. Night.